can we just say happy Mother's Day to everyone, every mom in the room? We're grateful for you, thankful for you. Moms uh, play a special role in, the, in our lives, and, uh, and we don't take that for granted, especially in this last year. The role of a mom uh, has uh, just uh, exponentially increased in its difficulty, uh, right? Some moms are, are working and uh, teaching their kids at home and managing everything, and so uh, we love you moms, and uh, we're we just so thankful for you. In fact, I want to pray a prayer, prayer of blessing over the moms. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you so much for the moms in our life, the moms that are here today, the, 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 the spiritual moms that we have, the uh, moms who've, who've fostered and adopted kids, the, 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 the future moms uh, that are here as well, Lord, and maybe uh, those uh, wanting to get pregnant, God, and, and maybe struggling, we pray uh, uh, for a, a special miracle in their life, Lord, and uh, I pray for all moms, God, that in this next season, that you would give them a, uh, a special grace on their life, and, and they would enter a season of rest and, 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 and refilling and refueling and uh, that your presence would be upon them. Thank you so much uh, for the gift that they are in our lives. We love you. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I'm so grateful for everyone here this morning. Uh, and uh, I'm going to preach the last message in the Romans 8 series. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8. In a couple weeks, uh, I'm just going to share from my heart. Uh, and May 23rd will be my, my last Sunday uh, before I take a, a break, three months. Uh, yeah. Was that excited that I'm gone or excited for me? All right. All right, well, <laughs> uh, and uh, so anyway, in a few weeks, I just want to share from my heart uh, some things that I've learned over the last uh, eight years, and, uh, but today, we're going to land the plane in Romans chapter 8, so turn there with me, Romans 8, uh, we're going to read the last nine verses uh, of Romans, I think Paul uh, saves the best for last, and, uh, and these verses are going to be very familiar to, uh, to most of you here today. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? What is he talking about? These things. He's talking about everything else that he mentioned in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Those kind of things. That we are all adopted into the sonship of God. Those kind of things. That we are all been filled with the Spirit. And we live according to the Spirit and not according to our fleshly sinful desire. Those kind of things in light of those things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, you know this verse. No, in all things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The best for last. I want to give you a little history in the, in the last uh, eight years of our church. Uh, many people in our church have uh, been coming for a few years. You're relatively new. And, uh, and there was a metamorphosis in our church about five years ago. Those who've, uh, who've been with us for longer than that, you kind of know we, we, we changed a lot at our church. If there was anything that could be changed, I think I changed it. All right. Uh, and uh, we changed the name of our church. All right. How many of you remember that? Uh, we, we changed the mission and vision of our church. Uh, in 2016, we launched a campus, uh, right? We did this thing at uh, Crater Elementary School. Yes, we had church at an elementary school where we had two here at 9, 11, and then we had a 10 o'clock in the worship band, and I was running back and forth. We had a lot of things happening in 2016, but 2016 was a metamorphosis, a transformation in our church because God did something in my heart the year before. In 2015, I, I was uh, wrapping up uh, my graduate uh, degree. I was, uh, for five years, I went to cemetery. I, I mean, seminary. <laughs> you know the joke about seminary, right? It's where good pastors go to die, all right? Uh, but, but in seminary, in graduate school, I was wrapping up five years. Uh, it took me five years because I had four kids and full-time job and a lot of things going on. And so as I was wrapping up that up, I, I just remember uh, being in that environment in a very highly academic, intellectual environment. I mean, I was around some people who've forgotten more things than I will ever know, all right? You know people like that? They're just brilliant and they're, and they're smart. And, and, and during that season, uh, of my time in seminary and learning and being educated and the deep things of scripture uh, was, was, was really forming and, and shaping me. Uh, but, but I noticed what was happening is that I was just taking what I was learning and I was preaching and it, and it was good and it was theological. But I had this revelation uh, in, in this season that it, that it wasn't actually landing in people's hearts. And, and I realized this. I realized that as I began to to, to pastor and shepherd and talk to people that it really wasn't what people were going through. In my first few months here, e even then, I, I did a funeral of a teenage uh, girl, and it was just heart-wrenching. And, and, and then you're ministering. I mean, I was 33, and you're, you're, you're trying to come up with words to say to a parent who just lost a child. And then uh, I, I remember, uh, 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 and this has happened several times, uh, a couple comes to me and they're on the last thread of their marriage. Like, like oftentimes the pastor is the last stop on the train to a marriage, all right? You, you know, you try your family to get help. You go to a counselor. The counselor doesn't work. You go to your pastor, all right? And I'm thinking, what do people need? And also at the time, we're kind of coming out of the recession, so there's still financial insecurity. And I realized this, and it was a moment of transformation. And this is where we said that we want to inspire people to know Jesus, that, that at our church, it's okay to not be okay. Because I realized in our town, in our region, that uh, everyone had problems, but very few people were admitting it. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to point out the problems and minister to the problems because that is what people are faith, facing. And at the end of the day, our faith is deep and intellectual, and it is as intellectual as you want 
to make it. But at the end of the day, our faith is a faith that works. It works in the everyday problems, in the pain points of our life, the frustrations with our life. It helps with our marriage. It helps with our parenting. It helps with our finances. And there isn't an area of your life that the gospel can't help with. And the gospel isn't designed to, to move and change uh, in, in, in you. And, and so I began to change even how I preach and even how I teach and, 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 and kind of bringing back to reality that the gospel is a gospel that works even though we experience pain because the reality is this, is that all of us experience pain. All of us experience what it's like to have pressure and pain in our life. And I think what Paul does is he lands the plane in Romans chapter eight. I think he brings us back to reality. He brings us back to reality that all of us will face struggle and trial in our life. But the struggle and trial is not there designed to take you down. It actually can make you stronger. And so the title of my ser sermon today is Strong Through the Struggle. Look at someone next to you say, Strong Through the Struggle. So last week, Paul talked about predestination. And he talked about glorification. He talked about invitation and, and justification. And he talks about these things that there have been entire books written over. But, but when he gets to the last nine verses, he talks about the struggles that everyone faces who calls themselves a follower of Jesus or everyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. He talks about struggles and trials that people will face. And so he lists them in here. There's actually seven struggles. And as I researched these words, each word is different. And each word has a separate meaning. And one thing to understand about uh, New Testament writings is it's, it's not like Paul was writing in a journal, just writing whatever came to mind. I mean, writing was expensive and took time and to, and, and to copy that took time and took energy. And so every word was thought out. Every word was strategic. And so every word matters. And so he lists seven different struggles in our life. Let me list the seven. We'll get up on the screen and I want to talk about each one. The seven struggles that we'll face in life, that Christians face in life. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. Let's, let's just dive into each one of these quickly. Uh, the, the, the first one is trouble. The, the, this word literally means to squash or to press down. All right. You ever felt pressure in your life? That, that's what this word is. Uh, that, that, that we experience things that try to push us, pressure us, squash us. And I said this at the very beginning of the pandemic, at least our experience of it when we went to online church, that, that whenever the gospel is pushed down, it, it has this unique thing about it that it actually isn't squashed, but it actually uh, expands. Not incrementally, but exponentially. How many of you remember that? It was the first Sunday we went to online church. And, 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 and I think the same truth is here, is that there are pressures that we all face in life. And those pressures uh, can, uh, that, that the enemy often wants to use them to, to, to squash and push you down. But, but actually, I think God can use those in your life. In, in fact, I think, um, I think the troubles, I think this is where we experience uh, most of our troubles as, as Americans. And you'll, you'll find out more why I say that in a moment. But, uh, but, but even in this pandemic, in the last 15 months, 
that, that, that I sense this, that, that a lot of times when crisis hit and troubles hit, the problems of your life come to the surface, right? It's, it's, when, uh, it's when character flaws begin to come out is when people are under pressure. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right, pressure in your marriage, you end up saying things that you didn't mean. Pressure raising kids, you end up saying things that you, that, that you wanna take back, all right? Or kids, pressure in your life and you say things to your parents that you say, you wish you could take back. The pressure causes us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. The, the second one is hardship. Hardship. In uh, the hardship, this is an interesting word. The, the, actual, the word actually means narrow. And, and, and the idea is this. Jesus used this same word. But by the way, the Bible is written in Greek. And different Greek words gets translated into, like the same Greek word might get translated into different English words words based on the context. But, but Jesus used this word, and he used this word in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. How many know that Jesus said that? When he says that word narrow, it's the same word, hardship. And so what I think Paul is talking about are not just general pressures in your life. That's the first one. I think he's talking about the hardship that comes with being a follower of Jesus. How many of you know that the way of Christ is not the wide gate? It is the narrow road. It is the narrow path. It is the hard road. And not to be discouraging, but the way of Jesus is going to be harder in the future than it is today. Already it's beginning to narrow. Are you with me? Yeah. And so the, the, this narrow, uh, uh, this hardship comes from the, the path to following Jesus. The path to following Jesus is the right road, but it is not always the easiest road. The, the third one that he uses is the word persecution. Persecution literally means to be hunted or chased, all right? It, it's not a fun word, all right? But, but the idea is this, is that not only, and, and by the way, Paul is talking to Christians in Rome here, both Jews and Greeks, so he's talking to the church, so this is for people in the church, that people will experience persecution, uh, uh, things that, that, that feel like they're chasing you. And, and sometimes persecution, we often think of being persecuted as a church, and uh, we, we, don't, we don't know what persecution is in that way, but we do know what it's like for things to kind of chase us. Let me give you an example. Sometimes people are chased or haunted by the things that they've done in the past. Even though they've given them to Jesus and Jesus has forgiven them, those things try to rear their head in your future or in your present to try to distract you from what God wants to do. The, the fourth one is the word famine. Now, uh, again, the only famine that Americans experience are the ones that are self-induced, right? Dieting, all right? Uh, uh, other than that, we, we, don't, know, we don't know famine. Uh, but, but I think that maybe we could take this word as not only thinking in a literal sense, but also a figurative sense. That, that, that sometimes there is a, a famine that you experience spiritually where, where you feel empty and you feel dry and you feel just drawn out and you feel like you need to be filled with God's presence. And, and, and we know this, I, I know this, all right? I've, I've been a Christian my whole life. I know that I can go through life and know my faith is secure and my life is secure in Christ, but still feel empty. 
Anybody, all right? But still feel kind of worn out. And, and, and even I personally am in a season where, 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 where I'm often leading on empty. It's why I'm taking a sabbatical to be filled because the things that used to fill me before are not doing the same thing before. So I need a little more filling. And some of you might be in that place where you need God to move in your life and you need his presence and you need uh, you, you, you need his grace more in your life and, and, and the, the, the Christian-y things that you think that are gonna work aren't always working and so you need a deep work of God in your life, an authentic work of God in your life. The, the, the next one is this word nakedness and again, most of us don't know what it's like not to have clothes but also there's two kinds of nakedness that you can experience and in, in, in one is physical but one is is figurative, and, and that's really that disrobing figurative in a uh, metaphorical sense is this idea of shame. We talk a lot about shame, uh, and shame is actually getting talked a lot about in the church and in, 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 in Christian circles today, uh, because shame, shame, the difference between shame and guilt, I, I said this a few weeks ago, but guilt is internal. Uh, it, it, it is uh, something that you just kind of internal consciousness, you're feeling guilty before God. But, but, but shame is something wholly different. Guilt is the feeling that you did something wrong. Shame is the feeling that you are something wrong. And shame is public. And, and we as Americans, for the most part, we live... Uh, we, we've lived in a guilt-innocent society where most of the world, especially in Asia and the Middle East and uh, in the Eastern world, have, have lived in a honor-shame society. And, and I think with the invention of social media, because everything is so public these days, and shame, remember, it's not private, it's public, that I think we're moving into an area of more shame in our life than we've ever experienced before. Let, let, let me give the next one, D danger. These last two, most of in this room have not experienced, and there's a chance that you will not experience. Only those who are privileged enough will experience these things. The first one is danger. And what Paul is talking about literally is uh, the, the, the dangerous road of, of being a Christian uh, in a, a nation or an area that oppresses you for merely being a Christian. This is what we would really say is persecution, right? That, that, that it's almost, not almost, that it is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. We, we don't know what that's like. All right, we, we might get made fun of by friends, all right? Family might tease you, but to live in a, the, the, to go to church where it's dangerous. And I'll, to, I'll, I'll use the example of, of my best friend who just uh, came off the field from uh, being a missionary in Turkey. Turkey is one of the least Christian nations, uh, uh, unreached nations in the world, one of the least. In fact, there are more Christians in Iraq and in Syria and in Iran than there are in Turkey. And, um, and after five years of learning the language, he planted a church in Istanbul. And, and he decided to go public with his faith. And so, uh, so he put a sign out front that said church, right? It's in this neighborhood. Uh, and he decorated and he, you know, he, he built the church out, put a platform. And, and in the first few weeks of them opening their church, their church was broken into and vandalized. I mean, there's a real sense of if I go to church today, there's going to be people people that oppose me, potentially people that try to harm me. That's what Paul's talking about. 
And the last one is the sword. This is martyrdom. This is people that would actually die for their faith. Now remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to Romans. He's talking to Christians that believe that Jesus is Lord in a society that says you can have any religion you want. All is good, polytheistic, but you must say one thing, that Caesar is Lord and that he is above all things. And of course, Christians won't say that. They refuse to say that. So the possibility of death And that way is a very real thing. It is a very real concept. And so Paul lists all these struggles in our life. And I think his point is this. That life is full of challenge and life is full of struggle and pain and problems and the hurts and hangups in life that, that seem overwhelming and that seem to, to, to uh, attempt to destroy your faith actually do the opposite. That the trials and the struggles and the pain and the persecution and the danger don't diminish your faith. They can actually strengthen your faith. Do you know, we have a really poor theology of suffering in, Amer- in the American church. You, you realize, right? That we don't want to experience pain. And so we do everything we can to avoid pain. Do you know that it'd be great if the Bible taught that, but it doesn't? Do you, do you know most of the Bible is written to a people who are suffering? It's not written to a people who are politically free. That they have the right to vote, right? That they can assemble freely. In fact, think about Israel. Israel was only, has only been free since 1942. But even then, even then, there's maybe 100, 200 years in all of history where the nation of Israel and the people of Israel have been a free place. And so all of scripture is written to a people who are under oppression, a people who are in pain, a people who are struggling in their life. And not only do these things not pull you apart from Jesus, they actually make you stronger. It's counterintuitive that you may feel weak in your struggles, you may feel empty, you may feel a famine, you may feel persecuted, but those very things that the enemy tries to pull you down actually make you stronger. They actually increase your faith. It's why the problems in our life are not to be avoided. They're actually to be embraced. The the, the gospel, the the Bible says that, that when we suffer, we should consider it joy because when we suffer, we become more like Jesus. And, and all, most of us here, we want to avoid suffering. We want to escape suffering. We, 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 we want to avoid it at all costs, but, 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 but Paul knows that, that pain and suffering and, and hurts and hangups and problems and troubles and trials cannot be avoided in life. And in fact, they're designed, God doesn't cause them, but they're designed to make us stronger. We are strong through the struggle. You can be strong through the struggle because of four things. I wanna give you four promises of God, just right out of the book, right out of Romans 8, the four promises of God while you're going through the struggle. The first one is this, that God is for you. God is for you. 
Some people need to hear that. Some people need to hear that, that God is actually for you. Why, why is that? Because sometimes we think that God is actually against us. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever thought, you don't have to raise your hand, but you're going through something bad in your life, painful, and, and you connect the dots and you think, well, I'm ex God is punishing me now for something I did in the past. That mindset, you're thinking God is against you. Are you with me? That God is actually for you. Sometimes we think that, that God is waiting for us to make a mistake so he can teach us a divine lesson. Uh, sometimes we think that we have to earn God's love and approval, and so we gotta do all these things in order to, uh, to, 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 for him to accept us. And so we gotta give more, we gotta serve more, we've gotta, uh, we've gotta read our Bible more, we've gotta go to church more, we gotta do all these things to receive God's love. But we've gotta understand the gospel is the opposite, that, that we do give and we do serve, and we are a community. Not because we have to, because God has already accepted and loved us. And so it's an overflow of what he's doing in our heart. Sometimes we think God loves those who are good according to our standards and he hates those who are bad. Like he's some sort of divine Santa Claus. He's only gonna give gifts to those who get their life right. When in reality, God makes our life right through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his whole point in Romans is that you are, just, you are made right, you are justified because you are in Christ. I remember a season in my life in my late teens and uh, early adulthood of thinking this kind of faulty theology that God was punishing me for doing something bad. And so the bad things happened were a punishment. And so I remember making deals with God. He you ever made a deal with God? God, if you take this away from me, from me then, then I'll, I'll just, I'll go to church more. <laughs> like I'll, I'll read my Bible a little bit more. And we kind of want things to be removed and we promise things to God, in, in, in reality, God doesn't cause the things, the bad things in our life to happen, but we know this from last week, he uses those things. God is for you. And if God is for you, Paul says, then who can be against you? What he's not saying is this, is that you won't face opposition in your life. We, we all know that we'll face opposition in our life. I mean, he says seven things that are gonna oppose you in your life. But, but, but God is for you. Je Jesus said it himself. Uh, that, that uh, well, let me, let me ask you a question this way. How, how many of you, let's just be honest, it's okay. At our church, it's okay to not be okay. How many of you are a people pleaser? All right, come on. All right, I never realized I was a people pleaser until, uh, I don't know, maybe it was four or five years ago, and I realized that as a pastor, I want everyone to like me. <laughs> And when people don't like me, I get really upset inside, right? I don't like it. And so I realized, well, yeah, I want everyone to like me. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. Do you, do you know that Jesus said this? Jesus said that, that, that people will hate you because you're my disciples. What? And you wanted to be liked your whole life. This is that narrow road. Are you with me? And we're entering a season, a culture, they're gonna say, hey, it's not okay to believe those things that the Bible says. You've gotta believe these things. People are not going to like you. They are not going to 
like you. What, what is Paul's point? That, that if, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is this. I want you to remember this. That there is nothing that can touch you that is stronger than the God that is for you. There is nothing that can come against you that is greater than the God that is for you. That things will come against you, but God will not give you anything that you cannot handle with his Holy Spirit. Are you with me? There is no kind of pain. There is no kind of suffering. There is no kind of opposition. No kind of persecution that is greater than the God that is for you. God is for you. Here's the the second promise of God. That Jesus intercedes for you. It says this, Paul says this, that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you. You know that what that word interceding means? It means to plead your case on your behalf. Remember, Romans is written as this kind of like legal, like, like, like forensic, like, like Paul uses this legal language that's used in the court of law all the time. Righteousness is an example. It means to be acquitted in, in, in a court of law. And so what, what he is saying is like that, that Jesus is actually pleading your case to God. He is interceding. He is an intercessor on your behalf. I, I mean, just, just pause for a moment. Just, actually, just close your eyes for a moment and just, just picture Jesus, however you pictured Christ. And, and he is whispering to God all the good things about you. And he's talking to God about your righteousness by the way that we receive through him. And he's, he's, and he's whispering God all the great things and the amazing things about you. And he's pleading on your behalf. You can open your eyes. Not only is God not against you and, and he is for you, Jesus is interceding for you. Let me get to the third one is this, is, uh, is that you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. You, you know, Paul could have said this and we would all like clap and say amen to this. He said you are, he, he could have said you are a conqueror in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? You are victorious. But, but, he, but he's emphatic with this language. He says, you are more than a conqueror. And, and what he's saying is that you will prevail, but you will prevail completely. And, and I think his idea is this, that it's not just that we get through the troubles. You know, troubles are not just something to get through or to manage. You you don't just survive through the troubles in life if you are a follower of of Jesus. You're not a survivor. You are victorious, and there's a big difference. Surviving means, oh, I just barely made it through that trial and that struggle. Being victorious means that you've already won because Christ has won on the cross. You are more than a conqueror, and so troubles in our life are not to be avoided but embraced. And through them, it's counterintuitive, through them, we become stronger and we become closer to Jesus. Let me list this last one and land the plane here. The the last one is this. The promise of God is that you are secure in Christ's love. Don't you love this verse that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ? Neither life nor death, (laughs) all right, nor angels nor demons, not the future or the present, no, no, no height, no depth can separate you from the love 
of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we read verses like this and we take them out of context. And this verse has become actually a debatable verse in Christian theology and Christian doctrine and really talking about the eternal security that we have in Christ. But, but, but remember, every verse is written in a passage, in a chapter, in a thought, and every chapter is in a book. And so Paul is talking in a very concrete in a real way that the struggles that you face in life will not separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. That you are secure in him when you're facing trouble, when you're facing persecution, when you have a spiritual famine in your heart, that God is still drawing you close even if you don't feel like it. There is nothing that can separate us from Jesus. You know, oftentimes when we're in the struggle, we never see the benefit of the struggle. And you never see the victory until you complete the struggle. How many you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced something in your life and it's not till a few years later and you realize, oh, that's what God was doing in me during that trial and during that, that painful moment. That, that, that is what God is doing. And I, I look back at the last year, year and a half of our life and and I, and I heard the, 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 the massive global and national trials that we faced in the last year. And, and, and the author listed them like this. He said, we've experienced five, five things in the last year. Global infirmity, the pandemic, racial inequality, social instability, right? We're still seeing it with the rioting that's happening. Uh, financial insecurity, Remember last March, we we're all wondering if we we're going to get a paycheck? <laughs> well, at least I was, all right? Are people still going to come? Are people still going to give? Like, is this still going to happen? Uh, and, the, and the last one is political instability. You know, any one of these things would have been a major crisis. Any one of them. Just, just think about that. Any one, storming the Capitol, any one of those things would have been a major crisis. And we didn't experience one, we experienced five. And I think what the enemy wants to use against the followers of Jesus is to divide, to divide, to press down. But I think God can use this moment to draw us close to him. And that, and that we can be stronger through the struggle in life. L let me just forecast something for you that I, I, I'm thinking in my heart of what's going to happen as much as I want revival, I, I think there is a sifting that's happening in the church today. And, and I think this, I think, and, and all the trends are telling us this, that, uh, that not ma as many people are gonna come be in church or come back to church that pre-pandemic. And so uh, this, is what I, this is what I sense in my spirit's gonna happen, is that there will be fewer people in the church followers of Jesus, but they will be more committed and stronger. And so I think there is a shifting and a shaking that is happening. A, a rattling of foundations. Because if God can get to the core and he can get people who are serious and committed to him, then he can accomplish anything through his church. And I think that shift is happening. And you get to decide, Lord, when you shake my foundations and the problems come my way, which side am I going to land on? And God's going to draw you and 
you're gonna be able to be drawn closer to him. But a lot of times in life, I wanna tell you, and I wanna close with this, we wanna avoid the struggle. Remember Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you or what? Wouldn't it be great if, God, if David said that you will rescue me? But God doesn't take you out of the valley. He actually walks with you in the valley. You know, one of the best things that we, you can do as a parent is not to shelter your kids from pain, but teach them how to walk through pain. I want to close with the story of um, the emperor moth story. You've probably heard the story. It goes like this. One day a man found a cocoon of an emperor moth. He took it home so he could watch the moth come out of the cocoon. He sat and watched it struggling to force its body through that little hole. Then it seemed to stop making any progress. It appeared as if it had gotten as far as it could and it could go no farther. It just seemed to be stuck. Then the man being kind decided to help the moth. So he took a pair of scissors, snipped off the remaining bit of the cocoon. The moth then emerged easily, but it had a swollen body and small shriveled wings. He expected that the wings would enlarge and expand to be able to support the body, which would contract in time. Neither happened. In fact, the little moth spent the rest of its life crawling around the ground with a swollen body and shriveled wings. It was never able to fly, and a few days later, it died. What the man in his kindness and haste did not understand was that the restricting cocoon in the struggle required for the moth to get through the tiny opening was the way of forcing fluid from the body of the moth into its wings so that it would be ready for flight. Once it achieved its freedom from the cocoon, freedom and flight would only come after the struggle. By depriving the moth of the struggle, he deprived the emperor moth of health. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I think Paul lands us in the most perfect spot as a capstone to the last 15, 16 months that we faced. That it is in the struggle and it is in the trial that we become strong. That when you are weak, you are strong because Christ is in you. And some of you are here and you're facing a battle and you're facing a trial and you're facing a problem of pain. And you just need more of God's grace and his power. You need to be filled up today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just wanna ask you, is that you? Do you need more of God's grace today? If that's you, wherever you're at, would you just raise your hand? Amen, I see your hand, I see your hand. Hands all over. Just keep your eyes closed for a moment. Let me just pray over you. Father, I pray that those who've just uh, vulnerably lifted their hand to you, God, that you would fill them up with your love and your affection and your grace. Would you surround them with your power? God, would you, would you give us hope in this season of the struggle and the pain that we're in? Whether it's emotional or physical, God, would you encourage us in these moments? And as we turn towards you, God, would we be made stronger in you? We love you, Lord. We praise your name. And everyone said, amen.